Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Ed Kitt, Illicit Finance Policy Lead at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. Ed and I talk about information sharing between the United States and the United Kingdom, the successes that that sharing has brought to date in fighting financial crime, as well as the areas where information sharing and cooperation could be improved. Prior to serving in his current role as Illicit Finance Policy Lead, Ed served for more than three years with the National Crime Agency, the UK's FBI, giving him a unique perspective on the growth of economic crime and the damage it causes. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ed and will subscribe to this podcast series either on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Here we go. The UK plots out a three-year economic crime plan. How do you fit into that? How does that fit into what you're doing in the US? Economic crime is deemed to be a significant threat to the security and the prosperity of citizens in the UK, and it's something that the UK government takes extremely seriously. Fraud is now one of the most common crimes in the UK, one in 15 people falling victim a year. Quite staggering. The economic crime plan, which you refer to, represents a step change in the UK government's response to economic crime and guides our future response to the threat. For the first time, the plan's really set out how the public and the private sector can work together. It outlines seven priorities, including how we can enhance our capabilities, improve information sharing, and really look to promote corporate transparency overseas. How I really fit into that is under priority seven, which outlines the international strategy focusing on enhancing the UK's overseas capabilities. This is where the Serious Organised Crime Network, or SOCnet, which I'm part of, fits in. I'm one of seven illicit finance policy leads based in what the UK assesses to be existing and emerging global financial centres around the world. We're really working collaboratively with our international partners to work to raise international standards around illicit finance, share tools to combat money laundering, and also working more closely in how we stem illicit financial flows to developing countries. That international network is what I'm part of and what was deployed in March last year. What is the current state of information sharing between the US and the UK and how can it be improved? Obviously, with that uptick in COVID-19 related fraud, my NCA colleagues are working to share thematic typologies and trends with our US counterparts. You'd come out of NCA too, right? Yep. So I'm seconded from the NCA. It's really pleasing to be able to see the trends and typologies that are being shared between law enforcement agencies in the UK, the US and the wider Five Eyes community. The UK and the US government hosted something in Washington, D.C. last summer called the Strategic Dialogue on Illicit Finance. That was a real opportunity for the UK and US government to get together. We covered an array of topics, jurisdictions of risk and innovative tools to combat illicit finance and money laundering. It's a really strong relationship. There's potential legislation that's coming out of the US's partnership in the Helsinki Accord. The Crook Act, which is sponsored by the Helsinki Commission in Congress, depending on the illicit finance trends and threats that we're seeing in our countries, translating that to how we can actually look at policy to counter that threat is something that my network does. Having that network of policymakers to see how we can tackle the problem more holistically is something that there'll be real value added in having. I know that it's important to the UK that the US move forward with some kind of beneficial ownership registry. The UK has been very vocal internationally in its support for beneficial ownership registers. It's well documented that anonymous shell companies are a key method used by criminals to hide assets for a range of different dangerous and illicit activities. And we see anonymous shell companies being responsible for laundering the proceeds of human trafficking, terrorist financing, wider kleptocracy. 
all too often, I think it's fair to say that criminal investigations hit a dead end when law enforcement encounters a company with hidden ownership and it really lacks the, the time and the resource to peel back and look more forensically at that company. The more sophisticated we see the criminal and the criminal network, the more complex those corporate layers are. The UK government has been hugely supportive of beneficial ownership registers. The UK was the first G20 country to open public beneficial ownership register in January 2016. Our register is publicly available. That leads to huge level of access for NGOs to be able to come in and look at our register and scrutinise our register. And it opens that register up to an additional layer of scrutiny, which I think is a really positive thing. We've been really tracking very closely the legislation in Congress, the Corporate Transparency Act, which passed out of the House tail end of last year. And we're conscious that the complementary legislation in the form of the Illicit Pash Act is currently being considered in the Senate, and that would make provisions for a private register. The kinds of efforts that have come about to verify ownership, these are all FinCEN initiatives. Why are those insufficient for the U.S. compared to a registry? The FinCEN CDD rule is a really interesting rule. Obviously, it requires the banks to be able to verify beneficial owners of their corporate customers. With the CDD rule, information provided is not reported to law enforcement in the first instance. Also, you've got a lot of corporate entities that hold real estate, art jewellery or other valuables without having to open a bank account. Anonymous shell companies that are laundering the proceeds of crime via assets and they're not touching on the banking sector. And that's something that isn't scrutinised with the CDD rule. GTOs are something that the UK is really interested in. And actually, our economic crime plan outlines the UK government's desire to look more closely at GTOs and how we might be able to replicate some GTOs we see as being absolutely integral to providing that valuable data to purchase residential real estate. You said you've learned a lot of important lessons from the company's house register. What have you learned in terms of data quality? It's a control or PSC register in the UK, and it's administered by the company's house. The feedback that we've got from law enforcement agencies in the UK is that our registers play an absolutely vital role in protecting national security. We've seen requests for information to assist investigations go up from 11 to 200 per month over the last five years. And, and often multiple pieces of intelligence are being provided to law enforcement each time. It's important to point out that in the current climate where we're seeing a surge in fraud and wider COVID-19 related criminality, having access to a tool to actually expose those true beneficial owners of companies is really important. Definitely can't sit here talking to you, Kieran, and say that our register is perfect. There's lessons that we've learned since our company's house register has been up and running. Something that was identified in the FATF's UK report in December 2018. The UK government is looking to really address the issues that come with kind of data verification in our own register and making sure that data is accurate. We're currently consulting on a number of proposals that will look to reform company's house. That's by giving it powers to query information submitted to the register, look to give them powers to seek additional evidence where appropriate, also to integrate Companies House's existing change programme, including forms to ensure that it's equipped to deliver those expanded functions with the capability to challenge inaccurate or misleading information. Still progress to make. The benefits to national security and to law enforcement have been really tangible to date. Some of the proposals right now in the U.S. are not that it would be a public registry. Is that important, the public part? We are really of the view that in the U.K. context, the public register works well. As I say, it opens up for NGOs and people to shine a spotlight on inaccuracies. We welcome scrutiny because that's part of what makes the register more accurate and ultimately more valuable.
However, we appreciate that in the US context, perhaps there isn't political will for a public register at the moment. But ultimately, having a private register and a repository which is accessible to law enforcement, absolutely invaluable to tackling anonymous shell companies. The message from the UK government would be we see any form of register, be that private or public, as real significant progress. What kinds of things might be transposed from Jimlet to the US. For your listeners who don't know, the Jimlet was established in 2015, and it's a tool to enable both the tactical and strategic intelligence sharing between law enforcement agencies and leading financial institutions in the UK. What it does is it brings together law enforcement, the regulator, and over 30 UK and international financial institutions to exchange and analyse information and intelligence. And we do that under a gateway in the UK called Section 7 of the Crime and Courts Act. And that enables private sector institutions to share information and law enforcement and other private partners share information on a multilateral basis. Really, the Jimlet's got two kind of strands. The first strand is the operations group, and that's dedicated to assisting ongoing money laundering and terrorist financing investigations. So it really involves vetted members of financial institutions being briefed every week on UK law enforcement subjects of interest. And requests are made by those law enforcement agencies to fill intelligence gaps they may have in their investigations. So that addresses the tactical sharing of information for the Jimlet. And then we have a second segment called the Expert Working Groups. These are a platform for members to discuss current or emerging threats and to identify innovative ways to counter these. These are bank-led sessions. The latter group, the expert working group, translate roughly to the FinCEN exchange over here. The key difference being that the expert working groups, the gymlets, take place once every six weeks. And there's different groups looking at a wide variety of threats, including trade-based money laundering, human trafficking, drugs and narcotics. We divide them into threats, whereas the FinCEN exchange happens kind of on more hoc basis and looks at a broader range of threats in each of those forums when they bring the banks together. The operations group roughly translates to 314A of the Patriot Act and the system where financial institutions respond to law enforcement requests via FinCEN. In the UK, we actually meet physically and that's a weekly occurrence, whereas you see in the US it's done slightly more virtually. Do you have some examples of how information sharing can make a difference? Since the gym that was set up in 2015, it's seen some really tangible results. New suspects being identified for criminal investigations, Right through the chain to arrests, well over 100 arrests have been made, which can be attributed to the Jimlet. Those extend very much to the human trafficking sphere. That's one of the expert working groups that has been set up with much success. Banks and law enforcement have got together and created and generated typologies around human trafficking and human trafficking indicators that have really gone on to inform their AML and compliance practices. One very interesting distinction to be made between the UK and the US, that obviously with FinCEN advisories, a lot of those are publicly issued, whereas in the UK, with a lot of the Jimlet alerts that are generated from the expert working groups, they're privately issued across the banking sector. And I think there's an interesting piece to look at around the pros and cons for each in terms of being privately and publicly issued. Sometimes Jimlet has been used also on cold cases to revive them and bring new financial data together. Yeah, absolutely. One of the real benefits about Jimlet is that when law enforcement presents at the operations group to an array of banks, they can really extend their search to a wide financial footprint. So accounts can be identified that perhaps weren't already known or like you say, cold cases where other banks have got accounts that law enforcement weren't aware of and that helps invigorate old cases. Give me a little perspective about where we could be in five years. 
a big piece of work which is underway at the moment is looking at how we can harness our respective public-private partnership models. So be that the Jimlet in the UK, Fintel Alliance in Australia, the FinCEN Exchange in the US and other public-private partnership models to better exchange intelligence. How can we streamline our processes in order to share thematic intelligence and typologies and trends? That will be a real benefit to the financial institutions. There's that age-old concern around feedback on suspicious activity reports from law enforcement and how law enforcement globally aren't necessarily forthcoming with feedback. Providing financial institutions with typologies that are being seen globally around different threat types will go a long way to counter that kind of issue that we currently see around SARS and SAR feedback. Corporate transparency is something that is hugely beneficial and will go a long way to countering the oligarchs and kleptocrats who seek to undermine our financial infrastructure in our respective countries. Professional enablers or gatekeeper industry is something that we're really interested in ensuring that they are properly scrutinised. In the UK, they fall under our anti-money laundering regime and are required to file as our financial institutions. And I know that in Congress, there's legislation in the form of the Repel Act, which would look to do the same. How we look at professional enablers is going to be really crucial in the next few years. And looking at threat posed from antiquities in terms of illicit financial flows is something that we really need to get under control. The UK in January this year extended its framework to include the art market. This now means that art market or antiquities market in the UK have to register with HMRC before they can carry on with their business. They have to report transactions that are €10,000 and more. They've got to carry out a risk assessment on their business to see how exposed they are to money laundering. And they've got to carry out customer due diligence, looking at how we can counter the illicit financial flows that we're increasingly seeing through there is going to be crucial in the next few years. Thanks for spending some time talking about these obviously critical issues. Thanks very much, Kieran. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Ed Kitt, Illicit Finance Policy Lead at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. I hope you like what you heard and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud so that you'll get an alert with each new podcast because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.